in the movie Walk the Line from about, feels like 10 years, but it was probably 20 years ago, uh, there's a movie about Johnny Cash. And there's a great scene that I, I honestly don't remember most of the movie, but this one scene stuck in my mind. It's the kind of scene uh, Hollywood loves. I, I, I don't know if it happens in real life. Um, but Johnny and June, you know, they're, they're talking. All of a sudden, they both just sort of spontaneously lean in and kiss. Uh, Johnny, a little bit awkwardly after the kiss is over, looks at June and says, hey, don't worry about it, it just happened. June, kind of amused, kind of annoyed, rolls her eyes and says, come on, Uh, you wear black because that's the only color you have. Uh, You discovered this amazing, incredible sound because you just can't sing or play any better. And now you kiss me and you tell me, don't worry, it just happened. She goes, try taking credit for something, Johnny, okay? This really uh, is the conceit, the question that drives the whole movie and the story of Johnny Cash. Uh, They're asking, exploring in the movie, you know, is Johnny a a musical and marketing genius who is only playing at being a simple country singer? Or is he really just a simple country singer who happened to be in the right place at the right time and just so happened to have a wardrobe full of black shirts? You know, I was thinking about this week as we were heading into Palm Sunday, that Palm Sunday presents a similar kind of dilemma. Uh, If you want, you can look through Palm Sunday through one kind of lens, and you can see those events, the events of Holy Week, starting with Jesus' triumphal entry, and, and you could look through that lens and you could see Jesus as a humble rural prophet who is just in over his head swept along by events and powers that are well beyond his control or comprehension. Uh, this Jesus, uh, you know, he's, he's riding into Jerusalem, he's, he's pleasantly surprised, like, oh, how nice that, that people have ridden out uh, to welcome me into the city. Uh, this Jesus fatally underestimates the recalcitrance of the Jewish leaders and also maybe underestimates the cowardice of the Roman governor. This Jesus, through this lens, is just a simple country prophet who's been manipulated and betrayed by the crowds, the Jewish leaders, and ultimately the Roman authorities. Uh, A man at the mercy of much greater events. So that's one way we could look at Palm Sunday and the events that follow, but there's a different lens we could look through. One that will see Jesus not as a helpless man caught in larger and more powerful currents, but as the orchestrator of these events, uh, as a man who is the author of all that transpires. This Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling prophecy. He's taking specific and intentional steps to reveal his identity and to accomplish his God-given mission. Now, I hate to give away my position so early in the sermon, But I'll just tell you that this second lens is the only lens you'll find for these events in any of the four Gospels. All four Gospels portray Jesus, not the crowds, not the Jewish leaders, not even the Roman authorities, but Jesus as the one driving the events of Holy Week. So this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like us to walk through Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, the one Paul read for us just a minute ago, and to highlight for us three specific goals that I think Jesus is intentionally trying to accomplish on Palm Sunday. Uh, So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. I won't reread them, but we're going to 
look back at that passage. So turn to Matthew 21, have your Bible open there. And and let me set the stage for us a bit. Uh, Like a great number of Jews from the region, what's happening here is that Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jerusalem specifically for the Feast of Passover. Uh, Now, for the past few years, of course, Jesus and his disciples have mostly been traveling throughout the countryside, where Jesus has been preaching and teaching and performing acts of great power, including physical healings, casting out demons, uh, and commanding nature on occasion. Some have even started to spread the word, rumors are circulating, that on one occasion, or maybe even more than one occasion, that Jesus has raised the dead back to life. Now, as you would assume, with rumors like these, with acts of power like these, with teaching like his, word about him has started to spread all throughout the region so that by the time we get to this week, Jesus has been drawing huge crowds wherever he goes. And now, as an observant Jew, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem uh, for this feast, but he likely would have made other visits for the other feasts. Uh, But what I want to point out this morning is that Jesus, and nobody else, Jesus intends for this visit to be different, and he is the one that takes steps to make sure that it is different. Look at verse 2. It's a story you know pretty well. We just read it. Uh, Let's just pause and ask for a moment. Jesus rides into the city on a donkey. Who, how does he get the donkey? Well, Jesus sends the disciples to get the donkey and her colt. Uh, It's not the disciples' idea. It's not like they're just walking to Jerusalem and the guy who owns them sees them walking and feels bad and offers them. Jesus sends his disciple to go and get them. And then we get this great little editorial note from the author of Matthew, right? Jesus sends the disciples off and and Matthew kind of whispers in our ear as the reader. He says, hey, reader, just FYI, the reason Jesus sends them to get the donkey is to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah has said. The prophet Zechariah says that when the, on that day, when the king, the true son of David, returns to Jerusalem, he will come to you riding on a donkey. And what I want to tell us this morning is that Jesus knows that prophecy. And he is acting here specifically to fulfill it. He is presenting himself to Jerusalem as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. So what does that tell us? What it tells us, I think, at the very least, is that Jesus orchestrated the triumphal entry. He did it in a way that would make an obvious public claim to the throne of David. Look, it's Jesus who picked his moment. It's Jesus who picked his transportation because he wanted everyone, crowds and Jewish leaders, to connect the dots. And it's worth noting that they do connect the dots. Look down at verses 9 through 11. Here is Jesus in conscious fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey just as Zechariah foretold and the crowds see him and they get it. Because what do they say? What do we just sing? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This, This is a clear reference to kingship. The house of David is the royal line of Israel. Jesus knew what he was doing. It's why he sent his disciples to get the donkey. It's why he rode the donkey into the city. He was making an obvious 
public claim to kingship. And it was one that the crowds and the Jewish leaders saw and understood. Friends, this triumphal entry was no accident. Uh, This was no pleasant surprise. Jesus was welcomed as the king because he had presented himself to Jerusalem as the king. So that's the first goal Jesus has. It's the first thing he sets out to accomplish, uh, to to offer himself as the heir of David and the rightful king of Israel. Now, that's already on its own a pretty audacious thing to do, and by the way, it's a dangerous thing to do, not just because the other Jewish leaders won't like it. Uh, There's a guy named Pilate who's under the impression he is the one who is the ruler of Palestine, but that's not all Jesus does. He has a second goal. Uh, Look down with me at Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. So this is immediately after the triumphal entry. It says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Then the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and they saw the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Jesus very intentionally does two things in this brief section, which together, they work together to reveal Jesus as God's promised Messiah. First, look at verses 12 through 13. Again, right on the heels of the triumphal entry, Jesus heads to the temple and he cleanses the temple. And it's important, I think, not to separate these events and treat them as as in total isolation from the triumphal entry. They come right on the heels of the triumphal entry. So remember, here's Jesus riding on a donkey in fulfillment of this prophecy from Zechariah. The crowds have poured out of the city. They've lined the streets. They're waving branches. They are are all but proclaiming him to be the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David. And what does Jesus do upon entering the city? He heads directly to the temple. And once he gets to the temple courts, he clears them out. Uh, He assumes the authority to clear out the temple. Uh, He he cleanses it. He restores it to its original purpose. My father's house will be a house of prayer. And then he claims the authority, apparently, to pass judgment on those running the temple. He says to them, you have made it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of robbers. Uh, He does all these things by his own authority, The obvious question on the heels of this would be, where do you think you get this authority? What makes you think, rural prophet guy, that you can just ride in here and start throwing over tables, kicking people out, and pronouncing judgment on the temple leadership? That's the official leadership. Where do you get off? Where do you think that you get the authority? A little bit later, uh, verses 23 to 27, the leaders actually approach Jesus. They ask him this explicitly. 
Uh, they're being a little bit coy, and Jesus is a little bit coy in response. But the reason, I think, is because the leaders know, as Jesus knows, there's only really one acceptable answer to that question. The only way Jesus could have the authority to do what he just did and said in the temple is if he were the Messiah, if he was God's anointed, if Jesus was not just Israel's king, but also their Messiah. Who else would have the authority to walk into God's house and exercise judgment on its leaders? Only God's anointed. Now, on its own, this is just a provocative act, all right? And it has its desired effect. It provokes indignation. But it also raises the question, right? When he comes in here and he does all these things, uh, it doesn't matter what side you fall on, whether you believe he's the Messiah or not, it, it raises the question, they understand correctly, the leaders understand, the children understand that in what he is doing, he is claiming to be the Messiah, God's anointed. But if that act raises the question, what I want to suggest this morning is that the next thing he does is meant to provide evidence, to provide proof that he is who he's claiming to be. Look down at verse 14. So again, you have to picture the scene. This would have been a, a dramatic, um, shocking event. He's throwing over tables. He's kicking people out. He's passing judgment. And then what happens next? The blind and the lame come to him, and he heals them. Now, I know we're used to this. It's Jesus. This is the kind of thing he does. But it's worth thinking about the fact that not everyone can do that. These are acts of great power. Jesus has just done something provocative that's making people ask, man, what, what does he think he's doing? Does he think he's the Messiah? And as you're asking, as you're having these conversations among yourselves, all of a sudden, all of a sudden someone blind from birth is being led up to Jesus. And Jesus heals them. First time in their life, they could not see and now they can see just like that. And next, someone brings forward a friend who's paralyzed, a paralyzed woman, and Jesus reaches down, takes her hand, and raises her up, and she, utterly astonished, walks, runs, jumps, praising God in the temple courts. And I gotta tell you, if the first thing raised the question, who does this guy think he is, these next actions start to provide some proof. If you're already asking, does this guy think he's the Messiah? Now you're watching him restore sight to the blind and you're going, maybe he is the Messiah. If the first action was a claim to have the authority of God's anointed, this next thing was a pretty unmistakable demonstration that he has the power of God's anointed. This is totally random, but this week, uh, I don't know, let's call it Wednesday, not Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, maybe Thursday, uh, I'm eating lunch in my office, I open up a tab for YouTube, and there on my front page, you know, I fell for it, they've got their little algorithm, they, they put up stuff they think you might want to watch, and there's this video that says, uh, undercover lifting coach goes into a gym, and it's got like 30 million views or something ridiculous, and I fell for it, I clicked on it, I thought, okay, what's going to happen here? Well, it's this guy, and he, at the beginning, he dresses him, he's a professional lifting coach, 
But he dresses himself in some baggy pants, a baggy shirt, and he puts on glasses. He's doing his best to make himself look, you know, kind of nerdy and like he's unfamiliar with a gym, right? And then he, then he goes into a gym and he's secretly recording himself. He's got his little beat-up backpack. Uh, and he walks up to these two guys who are just huge. They look like bodybuilder, weightlifter guys, and they're both standing next to a deadlift bar with like 500 pounds or something ridiculous on it. And he stands there watching as the one guy kind of struggles to try and lift this. And he puts the weight back down, he doesn't succeed, and here's this guy in his baggy clothes, and he goes, uh, hey, uh, you know, just, just a little heads up, your, your form's not very good. You've got your back in, in kind of a dangerous position. And these two guys, you know, these, these gym guys, they like look at each other, like, get a load of this guy, right? And the one, and, and, and the guy says, hey, he, he pulls out of his bag a big rubber band, and he goes, here, th- this is what you should do. Uh, I use this to, to help people fix their form. You put the rubber band under your feet, and you'll just sort of naturally correct your form. And the two guys start laughing, and they say, dude, dude, you're in the wrong section of the gym, man. Why don't you take your rubber band and go over there with the kids, Okay. And the guy goes, no, 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 look, look, look. And then he kind of edges over in front of them. He leans down, grabs the deadlift bar, and effortlessly deadlifts 500 pounds. And while he's holding it, he looks over at these two huge guys and goes, see, you correct your form, you'll lift it no problem. And the two guys, their eyes get huge. And the one guy who just told him, go take your toys over to the children's area, goes, hey, uh, do you still have that rubber band? I think there's an interesting little insight here, right? Which is, look, we all know anyone can walk around a gym offering free advice. If you've ever been in a gym, you know there are lots of people who appoint themselves to that role, right? They'll walk around, they'll offer you free advice, and, you know, usually you look at that person and you think, you know, I don't, what they're saying, it may or may not make any sense, it may or may not be a good idea. That that person has no credibility, you've never met them, you don't know why they think they should be telling you what to, what to do, right? But if that person all of a sudden leans over and deadlifts 500 pounds and makes it look easy, now you're going, well, maybe this guy has some credibility, right? Maybe this person knows what they're talking about. The reality is anyone could walk into the temple courts and flip over some tables and, and pronounce their, their dissatisfaction, their judgment on the temple authorities, It doesn't take much to do that besides some serious audacity. Uh, That's all you need, not much else. By itself, the cleansing and judgment of the temple is provocative, but it's not conclusive. But do that and follow that up by restoring sight to the blind on making the paralyzed to walk. You need more than audacity to do that. You need power. If you put those two things together, the claim to messianic authority and the clear demonstration of messianic power, and now you've got something. Now you've got a claim to being the Messiah, to being God's anointed that's very hard to ignore. Friends, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to present himself as David's son and heir, as the rightful king of Israel. But he also came to present himself, to reveal himself as Israel's Messiah. So those are the first two goals Jesus has on Palm Sunday, 
to present himself as Israel's king and to present himself as her Messiah. But he has, uh, and he does, hopefully, you can see, he's doing things intentionally and self-consciously that communicate to Jerusalem the truth of those two claims. Uh, he is presenting himself as the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies that so many of them would have been f- familiar with. And as we've seen, I think it's important not to ignore this, it works. Uh, you could try to do those things and no one gets it, Jesus does those things and people get it. The crowd understands. I love that. I'm I'm on a tangent now, but I can't resist. I I love the little scene, right? He's he's judged the temple. He does the healings. and, And the children, like we just had up here, the children are praising God. Hosanna to the son of David, they say to Jesus. And the temple authorities are annoyed. Tell them to be quiet, essentially, They say, don't you hear what those children are saying? They're saying you're the Messiah. They're saying you're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, yes, they are. And he walks out. Jesus isn't just making these claims. The people present understand. Even the authorities, that's why they're irritated. But Jesus has a third goal. It's not just those two. There's a third one. One that's a little harder to see. It's more subtle. And and let's just be honest here. It's only really possible to understand it in hindsight. Uh, And to understand it, we need to be paying attention to Jewish traditions and to Jesus' actions during the rest of the week. So to know this third goal, we need to know what's happening on Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, in the Jewish religious calendar at that moment. So turn with me, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. I'll give you a second to get back there. Exodus 12 is the first, it's God providing instructions to Israel for the very first Passover. So here he is, God's addressing his people. He says this, chapter 12, verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the 10th day, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. So you select your Passover lamb, and then on the 10th day, and then you keep it. You take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So ignore the month thing here for a minute. The Jews use a lunar calendar. It's totally different from ours. But take note of the days, right? So Passover, the year we're talking about, of that first Palm Sunday, Uh, The 14th day of the month falls on Thursday, what we'd call Monday Thursday now. And if you work backwards from that, that makes Palm Sunday the 10th day of the month. That means for the Jews in Jerusalem on that day, the day that Jesus enters the city is what I'm going to call Lamb Selection Day. That's the day that the people of Israel would select the Passover lamb. That's what God told them. Tenth day of the month, you select the lamb, and then on the 14th day, that lamb is slaughtered, right? It was lamb selection day when Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem. That's the day he picked to enter the city. Not the day before, not the day after, but on that very day. Friends, I want to propose to you this morning that that wasn't an accident and that Jesus knew that what he was doing that he had chosen to present himself not just as the Messiah and King, 
but that he was also presenting himself to Jerusalem as the one true Passover lamb, as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. He comes to Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day to offer himself as the one without sin and to offer his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now, like I say, I get this is a little more of a stretch than the previous two. It's more subtle. It's harder to see. But I want to say it's no less intentional. Look, if this was all we knew, if all we had was he entered the city on this day, it's maybe a coincidence. But it's not all we know. If you go back to Matthew chapter 26, we'll put it up on the screen. Matthew 26, same week, four days later. It's on Thursday. It's it's Passover night. Uh, Jesus here is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And in this passage, which we've all read, heard probably hundreds of times for communion, Jesus interrupts Passover and he says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, Matthew 26, 26, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, again, just picture what's happening here. In the middle of a feast designed to commemorate Passover, right? It's designed to commemorate that first time in Egypt when the people of Israel, they slaughtered a lamb, they put the blood on the doorposts, and because of that blood, the judgment of God passed over their house, right? So they're, they're having a meal commemorating, celebrating, remembering that specific event. And during that meal, Jesus interrupts that meal, he takes a loaf of bread, he breaks it, and he, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, on the night before he laid down his life, Jesus provides the disciples with exactly what they will need to understand and interpret his crucifixion. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the perfect sacrifice toward which all the others have always pointed. The disciples, let's be honest and fair to them, they they weren't ready to understand it. They weren't ready to hear that he was going to die, let alone to start talking about what that death would mean. But when they were ready, they were able to look back and they were able to see and understand what Jesus had been saying all along. Jesus was Israel's king and Messiah, but he was also the world's true Passover lamb, the one whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of many. Uh, In the movie Ocean's Eleven, Danny Oceans, a convicted felon uh, and thief, puts together this team of elite grifters and con men, uh, and and together they make this elaborate plan to, to rob Las Vegas' wealthiest casino on its most profitable night of the year. So, so they, they put together this elaborate plan, but on the night that the heist is supposed to happen, Danny Oceans, the, the ringleader, just sort of carelessly allows himself to run into Terry Benedict, the owner of the casino. And this isn't great because Terry and Danny have some history. 
And Terry Benedict knows that Danny is a convicted thief and felon. And so deciding uh, to err on the side of caution, uh, I'm, I'm summarizing things a bit here, uh, Benedict calls his casino security and he says, you know what, just to be safe, let's, uh, let's grab a hold of Mr. Oceans here, let's drag him into the bowels of the casino and put him in a locked room for the night, just in case, just to be safe. And so Danny's dragged back in there, he's thrown in the room with this scary looking guy who is, who's, who is told to uh, engage Danny Oceans uh, in, in what we, we might call an enhanced interrogation, right? Uh, it doesn't look good based on what we know. And in fact, to Danny's team and to, to us, the audience, it looks like Danny's plan has failed before it's even started. It looks from the outside like Danny is now at the mercy of someone far wealthier and far more powerful. But as the heist unfolds, those same exact events begin to look very different when we look at them from the other side. All of a sudden, we look at those events and we realize Terry didn't take advantage of Danny. Danny took advantage of Terry and of his personal history with Terry Benedict to distract the owner at the key moment of the heist. And, by the way, to conveniently remove himself from all suspicion for the heist, because after all, Terry knew very well Danny was locked up during the whole thing. In hindsight, what the crew and the audience are able to see is that what looked like an accident, what looked like failure, was actually a brilliant plan. It was victory. I think if we're not careful, we can fall into looking at the events of Palm Sunday and Holy Week in, in a way that we, we see Jesus as a man at the mercy of events, at the mercy of people and powers far greater than himself. If we're not careful, we look at the cross and all we see is tragedy and failure. But the gospel authors, looking back at those same events in hindsight, see something very different. They look back and they see clearly that Jesus was the man driving events, a man clearly and publicly presenting himself as the Messiah and King of Israel. Looking back, they are able to see that he was the true Passover lamb whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. They saw, in other words, that Jesus accomplished he accomplished everything he set out to do. They saw that what had looked like failure was actually God's brilliant plan and Jesus' victory. It's worth, I'm getting you know, ahead of us this week here a little bit, but it's worth noting, I think, that we know that to be true for the same reason that the disciples and the gospel authors know that to be true. We know it because on next Sunday, and you should come back and join us next Sunday, we know it because on that next Sunday, God raised Jesus from the dead. And among other things, Jesus' resurrection was God's declaration that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be on Palm Sunday. Uh, Peter, I love it. Peter, Acts chapter 2, 50 days later, he's back in the city with thousands of other Jews who have come to Jerusalem for yet another religious feast, and Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, looking back on all these events, stands before these Jews, 
many of whom, if not most of whom, would have been there on Palm Sunday, and he declares to them, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both king and Messiah. And then he concludes, therefore repent and be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, that's all three. That's, I mean, it's my sermon conclusion, but it's also Peter's sermon conclusion, right? Peter, looking back, sees exactly what I see this morning, that on Palm Sunday, Jesus claimed to be king, he claimed to be Messiah, and he claimed to be the lamb who took away the sins of the world, and Resurrection Sunday proved that he was who he claimed to be. Jesus was Messiah and King. He is our Passover lamb. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks. More than that, God, we join again that chorus uh, throughout millennia and from all around the globe who bend our knee to Jesus Christ who proclaim you to be the King and the Messiah and the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God, we thank you that you, in Jesus, have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you that he is the King who has brought God's rule to earth, who has brought salvation for any and all who will receive it. Lord, I pray that... uh, any this morning here who have not yet made Jesus their king and their savior might be moved to do that this morning. God, I pray if there are any here who who feel a need to repent or to be baptized in the name of Jesus, God, might your spirit move them to that act of obedience today as well. In your name we pray, amen.